Welcome to another edition of the official Jets podcast, continuing our draft countdown series presented by Verizon. On today's episode, EA and I recently caught up with MMQB's Albert Breer, talked about the Jets draft ahead, looked back a little bit to free agency, and also Albert had some great things to say about what Sam Darnold is doing right now during this quarantine time in California. EA, another week of the pod. How you doing out there? I'm doing great, Greens. Yeah, Breer is so dialed in with so many things happening in the National Football League, and I think Jets fans are really going to like this one because you haven't heard too much about Sam Darnold this offseason, and rightfully so. A lot of things going on, and Sam back home in California, but he is still working on his game, Greens. Yeah, we really covered the full gamut here with Breer, and we had him for about 20 minutes. And without further ado, here's Albert Breer. How do you view what Joe Douglas did in free agency? And not only that, but how does that then set him up for the draft ahead? Yeah, you know, I think one of the nice things about what Joe did is that he didn't tie himself down to too many guys. And, you know, I I think that there's an inefficiency to the free agent market where, you know, in a lot of cases, um, if you're really, really aggressive with the first wave, you wind up overspending and, and signing guys to deals that don't look so good two and three years down the line. So I think doing deals with some guys, you know, taking swings at guys like Rashad Perryman or Pierre Desir, who've had flashes in the past, who might be a little bit more um, than, than, than what we've seen to this point in their NFL careers. Um, I, I think those are worthy risks. They plug holes. And I think the idea is, you know, you, you get a receiver like that, you get a, um, you know, you get a, you get a corner like that. And then you sign the amount of offensive linemen. They yeah. sign cover Connor McGovern and George fan, obviously at the top of the list. And I, you know, to me, it's just, it, it allows you to go into the draft without having to press one need or the other too hard. Albert, he's definitely wrapping his arms around Sam Darnold. He said, yeah. in fact, last preseason, he told his parents, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect this guy. And he's went out and done that in free agency. Uh, Robbie Anderson departs to Carolina. He brings in Perryman, a guy who flourished down the stretch last year in Tampa. But I wanted to further the conversation about Darnold here. Yeah. What can you tell us about QB quarantine school in California <laughs> under Jordan Palmer? Yeah, well, well Sam's still out there um, because he, he has a house out there. But, yeah, it was an interesting circumstance where, um, you know, three guys, and these guys all trained for the draft together with Jordan Palmer, Kyle Allen, Josh Allen, and, uh, and Sam Darnold. Um, we're out there when, you know, the situation that we're all facing in this country worsened. And so, really, um, it was, I mean, for the most part, I think it was an eight-person, seven-person quarantine. So it was Josh Allen, his girlfriend. It was Kyle Allen, his girlfriend. It was Sam, Sam's buddy from USC who was working out with him, and then Jordan Palmer. So that's – my math's not great, but I think that's seven people. And they were all sort of kind of quarantined out there, and they didn't have a place to throw. They didn't have a place to work out. So instead of being on local parks or local fields, which were all shut down, they were throwing on the beach and instead of going to a gym, they were working out of the garage of a buddy of their trainer who had like a little makeshift 40 square foot area to work out in. So uh, they definitely did their, their best to make the most out of the situation they were each in. I know Kyle Allen's gone back to Arizona. I know Josh Allen was looking at either going home to Fresno or actually maybe going all the way back to Buffalo. Obviously all of that's a little difficult now. Um, and I think Sam, as far as I know, is still out there in Orange County. But I guess there are worse places to be if you're going to be quarantined, right? I mean, right there on the beach in California. 
Yeah, and it makes total sense considering he's from San Clemente. So home yep. for Sam Darnold. But EA mentioned Joe Douglas wrapping his arms around Darnold. I just wanted to ask you, what can you tell us about somebody that the Jets have reportedly agreed to terms with? And you mentioned him too, George Fant, because he plays yeah. on the opposite side of the country. Feels like Jets fans don't know a lot about him other than he's an athletic freak. Yeah, I mean, he's an interesting player. Obviously, college basketball player. I'm sure you guys are familiar with his backstory. And um, at one point, the Seahawks thought he was going to be, you know, or had a shot at least to be their long-term left tackle. That obviously didn't work out. They wind up pulling off the trade for Dwayne Brown a few years ago. But um, at the very least, like a, a valuable depth piece, a guy who can be a swing tackle for you. And I think that was sort of the idea here. And, and you look at what uh, what Joe Douglas has done, um, yeah, I, and I know he was saying this to, to other people in the league over the course of the, the couple of weeks um, in and around the combine. Uh, you know, he wouldn't. Yeah, he he went with it went with the idea that he was going to be working with almost a totally blank slate on the offensive line. And so, um, you know, I think there was this feeling we're going to have to start over a little bit. And I think for everybody who was looking for offensive linemen, things changed a little bit early on when you know you saw Joe Tooney got tagged and Brandon Sheriff got tagged. And I think both those guys would have been of interest to the Jets, um, you know, so, you know, he sort of reset a little bit. And I think going in on these low risk deals with some guys made sense for them. Again, George Fan at the very least is, is, is your backup swing tackle, Connor McGovern, you know, you're probably your starting center now. Um, so you at least go into the draft with, you know, a, a few more pieces where if what you hope plays out, which I think would be one of the tackles falling to them at 11, um, you're not completely up a Creek. Your Monday morning quarterback uh, column is a must read and also check out Albert's podcast because that's a good listen as well, because you did have day four mentioned Jordan Palmer on recently. Um, you are stationed there right outside Boston. Yep. <laughs> so what can you tell us about your take on the changing landscape of the AFC East with Tom Brady, a Tampa Bay Buccaneer? Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely weird. I mean, I, I grew up here, so I, I have, you know, kind of an understanding of where the Patriots were before all of this and sort of how their place in the landscape up here has changed. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely going to be interesting. I, I think it's fascinating. The, the idea we've always had that question, is it more Brady? Is it more Belichick? Well, I, you know, we won't get the full answer to that here because, you know, Belichick's dealing with the reworked roster and Brady is, is 42 years old, but um, yeah, I think at least getting like an idea of what that's going to look like is going to be really, really interesting. And so, you know, the Patriots look like the last couple of years, they got very old. They've got cap issues. And so I think 2020 is very much a retooling year. They signed a couple of guys who are really program guys for them and, and Devin McCourty and, and Matt Slater to sort of carry the message on. Uh, but I think 2020 is very much going to be a year about a year, you know, dedicated to getting a little bit younger I think they're going to give Jared Stidham a shot at the quarterback position. I would not rule out them drafting another player at the position in April. And so I think that, you know, that sort of opens things up a little bit. And it's interesting too, because they were in this position before in 2009, 2010, Brady created so much margin for error for them that nobody really realized how much roster turnover they underwent at that time. They were able to successfully do it with Brady on the roster. It's going to be much more difficult without Brady on the roster. And I think that opens up the uh, that opens the door for for everyone else. And I think in particular the Buffalo Bills, who were in the playoffs last year, that made the playoffs two out of three years with Sean McDermott. I, I mean, to me, it almost puts pressure on the Bills, where um, they've they've had three years to build. Now they've been in the playoffs, um, you know, two out of three years. They've got a young quarterback in Josh Allen going into year three. 
Uh, you know, there's there's a fair amount of pressure on the Buffalo Bills to get it done. I think the people there would tell you it's good pressure, but it's pressure nonetheless. You know, for the draft in a couple of weeks here, obviously a big storyline in terms of the Jets is the offensive tackles and the big four with Andrew Thomas, Mekhi Becton, Jedrick Wills, and Tristan Wirfs. I understand EA and I were talking about this too. There's a belief and that none of those guys might be on the board by the time the Jets pick at 11. So if you were wearing Joe Douglas's shoes in that standpoint, would you be a fan of trading back? Or would you just take a different position at 11? It's going to be interesting because I, I think what you have. So I like the way I look at it is if the three quarterbacks go, um, then, you, you know, beyond the three quarterbacks, I'm talking about Burrow, Tua and, and Herbert, of course. Um, then you got the four elite tackles, the guys you mentioned, Wirfs, Wills, Becton and Thomas. And then you got four elite defensive players in my mind. And that's Derek Brown, Jeff Okuda, Chase Young, and Isaiah Simmons. And so the three quarterbacks go and either one of the elite defensive players or one of the tackles is going to make it to you. And so if I'm Joe Douglas, I'm looking at it and I'm saying to myself, I'm sort of on the fringe right here where I might not get that tackle, but do I want that defensive player? Like if, if Derek Brown were to fall to me and I don't think Derek Brown makes it there, Derek Brown would fall, would fall were to fall to me, then you know maybe I snap him up. Here's the other piece of it. All right. Let's say the four tackles and the four defensive players all go in the top 10. Well, that means that one of the quarterbacks has slipped to you. So then are you a spot where somebody wants to trade up and get one of the quarterbacks? And so I think ideally Joe, Joe, Joe Douglas would love to have one of those tackles fall to him um, and get a guy that they can kind of put in place at the left tackle position, ideally for the next 10 years. But failing that, I mean, you either wind up with maybe an elite defensive player or you're in a position to trade down and pick up a lot of draft capital. We live in an unprecedented time right now. And you talked about some scouts having the belief that, hey, this might be a big guy draft, meaning it's going to be a little bit safer to go in that direction as opposed to maybe some of the skills guys in you said, Albert, that you wouldn't be surprised at all to see Josh Jones from Houston and Austin Jackson from USC be part of that tackle class in the first round. Yeah, and I mean, even like a Lloyd Cushenberry or, uh, or Cesar Ruiz, the LSU center, the Michigan center, uh, maybe those guys sneak in the bottom of the round. I mean, I, I just, I know this, like the, some of the teams that I talked to over the last few days, you know, we're saying that the, the, the bigger guys are a little bit of an easier projection for most teams, you know, and so... You know, if you haven't had the chance to sit down with a receiver, if you haven't had a chance to work him out and see how he ran, runs certain routes, if you haven't had a chance to talk to a, a defensive back or a, a linebacker about the scheme they played in in college and how they might fit what they want, what, what, what the team wants to do at the next level, uh, if you're projecting a little bit more and you haven't had the chance to go through the pro day circuit, you haven't had a chance to go through with 30 visits and all of that sort of stuff, it is a little safer to pick the big guys, right? Like it is a little safer to go ahead and say, you know, this offensive tackle, maybe I look at him as, as a high second round prospect, but we're at the bottom of the first round and I feel more comfortable about taking him here than maybe I would be about taking a corner or receiver. So that's sort of the logic there. That's why I think, you know, someone like J- J- Javon Kinlaw could wind up going in that elite group that I'm talking about. You could see him go like ninth to Jacksonville um, because he's a safe pick in this circumstance. And so I do think sort of the circumstance that our entire country's in right now, that's created a different draft cycle for all 32 teams will make this a little bit more of a risk averse draft. That'll mean maybe less risks on character guys, less risks on injured guys. And of course, 
you know, the lowest risk guys in a lot of these scouts and, uh, and coaches minds are the big guys. You've written about this in the past too. the recent success of second round receivers. And when you look at the receiver landscape right now, you think about Jerry, Judy, CeeDee Lamb and Henry Ruggs at the top of this list. But do you almost is there a situation where those guys even slip to where they're projected to go based on what you just said and the recent success and how rich of this receiver classes. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's probably two things. It's the depth of the class. And I think it's also the reality that there's no Julio in this year's class. There's no AJ green in this year's class. That's nothing against Judy who I've heard comparisons um, to, to Marvin Harrison on. It's no, nothing against CD lamb who I've heard compared to Deandre Hopkins. So, uh, you know, those are two really good players and guys who can be number one receivers and probably are going to be the first two receivers off the board. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these teams are looking at the depth of the class and saying, there are going to be really good receivers available in the second round. There's going to be really good re- receivers available in the third round. And maybe we should just sit here and take our tackle or take our pass rusher or take our corner and wait and get a receiver in the second or third round. And like you said, what bolsters that is the success of second year, second round receivers over the last few years, Michael Thomas, DJ Chark, the two old miss kids last year, DK Metcalf and AJ Brown. Um, there's a really, really good tra- track record right now for second round receivers. And so I think some teams will look at that and say, you know what, maybe we should wait for say a Brandon Ayuk or a Justin Jefferson. Maybe one of those guys falls to us in the second round. And maybe that's a better play for us than, than going and getting a Jerry Judy or a CD lamb in the first round when there's a little bit more scarcity at some other positions like tackle and corner. Earlier, you mentioned Desir. Obviously, we can pencil him in as one of your boundary corners. The Jets also re-signed valuable nickel corner, Brian Poole. But across the way, a question mark as we head to the draft. Yeah, You think that the corners maybe are flying under the radar here and there might be some value in the second round? Yeah, you know, I was sort of surprised to, to, to hear about this because I'd always, you know, and it's sort of forever. It seemed like it was like Jeff Okuda and everybody else and, you know, so as I'm going through some of my calls the last few days, like one of the things that came up is like, you know, this is a corner class that's like, you know, maybe you're not going to find somebody in the fifth round, but there are six or seven really good players, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, so Okuda is the best of them. And Okuda probably goes in the first six or seven picks, right? So Kuda's off the board for most people, but um, Christian Fulton, CJ Anderson, Jeff Gladney, Damon Arnett, um, you know, there's like, there, there are going to be good corners available in the second round. And, you know, to your point, I'm sure this is sort of what you guys are getting at. If you're Joe Douglas and you're sort of gaming this a little bit, maybe you look at it and you say, okay, if we want to get a tackle, if we want to get a corner, if we want to get a receiver out of this year's group, how do we do it? Well, the tackles might all be gone by the time we get to the second round. So let's take a tackle in the first round and maybe we get a good corner at the top of the second round but there won't be one available in the third round. So let's take our corner there. And then in the third round, you get your receiver. So I think just the idea of looking at it globally and looking at the class overall kind of gives you a picture for how some teams might game all of this. Let, let me ask you this as we start to wrap things up here, not, not related to the draft at all, more in related to Sam Darnold. I just want to know your opinion on, because I don't think we've talked with you about this since the end of the season, what can you expect from Sam Darnold if you're a Jets fan entering his second year 
under the same system for the first time in his career. And not to mention, he's 22 years old. He's six months younger than Joe Burrow, who's projected to be the number one overall pick and the longest tenured quarterback in the AFC yeah. East. Well, I'm a big believer. And and look, like, I, I think that this is a huge part of it that goes overlooked a lot. A lot of like, like when quarterbacks are young, they're sort of at the mercy of what's around them. And, and that's not saying that there's no one who can rise above it. But I mean, look, like, you know, we've talked about the guys who've had like MVP type seasons the last few years at the quarterback position, right? Like, let's look at some commonalities. Okay. So Carson Wentz in Philadelphia, you had a really good offensive line, a premier left tackle and J- Jason Peters, a like like a fantastic uh, quarterback situation from a coaching standpoint. Doug Peterson, Frank Reich, and John D. Filippo. The year after that, Patrick Mahomes, great tackles there. Eric Fisher and Mitch Schwartz, a, a legendary quarterback uh, guru, and Andy Reid. And then last year, Lamar Jackson. Well, what do we have? We got a left tackle and Ronnie Stanley, who was a top 10 pick. We have a head coach in John Harbaugh, who's run a fantastic program for over a decade. And we had an offensive coordinator in Greg Roman, who was perfect for what Lamar Jackson brought to the table. And so I think a lot of cases, and look, that's not taking any credit away from Carson Wentz or Lamar Jackson or Patrick Mahomes for what they've accomplished, but a lot of times you can trace early success for a lot of these guys. And this can go all the way back to guys like Brady and Manning, the situations they've been put in. And so I think that sort of puts the pressure on Adam Gase and Joe Douglas to create the right scheme situation for him, create the right situation around him. He's working on technical stuff out in California. There's been little things that they've given him mechanically to clean up a little bit. Um, he wants to get better throwing the deep ball. They've worked on that a little bit. I think right now, so much of what he becomes in 2020 is going to be based on what's around him. And of course, because you're in that window where you've got him on a rookie deal, that puts a fair amount of pressure on Adam Gase and Joe Douglas to create the right environment for him. Final one for me, um, Albert, and you've been so generous with your time and we're wishing you and your family well. Uh, You've written about your wife who's a nurse there and I know she is on the front line. So, um, you know, we're sending many blessings your way and your family's way. Um, But the final thing is, what is the 2020 draft actually going to look like from a fan's (laughs) perspective? Because we're sitting here two and a half weeks away. Yeah. And we've never seen, we've never lived through a time like this. And we're talking about a virtual draft. What does that mean? Well, the memo went out to NFL teams last week and it basically, you know, I think was, and this was look, the teams that are in States that are a little more restricted and you guys obviously are one of them uh, really pushed for this and said, it should either be everybody gets to go into their facility and work from their facility or everyone has to stay at home, like like one or the other. It can't be in between. Um, and I, you know, obviously that was to try to strike competitive balance. I, I don't. I'm not a doctor. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not a. I'm not in government. But I find it pretty hard to believe that within the next two and a half weeks that every one of these team facilities is going to be open. So, I mean, I think it's a pretty fair bet that uh, when we get to the end of April, everybody's going to be running the draft from home. And it's interesting, guys. I mean, like the IT part of this, I, I, I got to tell you, like that there are teams that are very, very concerned about that. And that's sort of flown under the radar. But you think about like the sort of bandwidth you need in your house to run the internet, to run, you know, like the cell phone service, all the different stuff that goes into communicating and working during the draft that you would have in a team facility that's wired and connected with business-grade internet. 
not having that's going to be a problem. And it's funny because when I wrote about that last week, I actually had a number of area scouts reach out to me. One of them, uh, a national scout for one of these teams, said to me, oh, well, that's that's good. Now I guess the the office cats understand how all of us feral cats out there on the road have to work. And he <laughs> mentioned to me, and I thought this was really interesting, he said that just to run the software that's on his computer, right? Like he like Because he's a road scout. He doesn't live. He, he, he works for a team in one place and lives somewhere else. Um, he basically explained to me that like to, 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 to do his job, the internet isn't strong enough in his house to support the stuff that they have video wise and everything else on the computer. So he actually, when he's at home has to work out of a local Starbucks because they've got a stronger internet connection there. So no. think about that. That's a single scout, right? Like that's one scout. Now think about that. Think about that multiplied by however many people are out there. Like if you have five people in your house trying to run this equipment at once, whatever it is, I, there's a huge challenge out there. And so I think the NFL is going to try to do a lot of creative stuff, but they've got a lot to work through in the next two and a half weeks as far as how this is functionally going to run for the guys who are making these multi-million dollar decisions. It'll definitely be fascinating, no doubt about it. April 23rd to April 25th, the NFL draft. Albert Breer, MMQB, thank you so much for joining us here on NewYorkJets.com. Awesome. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Very interesting dynamic, wouldn't you say, EA, with Josh Allen and Sam Darnold? Obviously, like Albert Breer said, Josh Allen, Sam Darnold, and Kyle Allen have been training together since before the draft in 2018. And actually, Kyle Allen went to Dallas not to be selected there, but as a guest of either Allen or Darnold. I don't remember. But I remember seeing something that said when Darnold and Josh Allen trained together, of course, both being in the same division, they can't necessarily call out their plays because they don't want to tip their hand to one another, even though they're really good friends. That's interesting. They're both uh, great competitors, very different players. You know, Darnold, of course, the more accurate quarterback. Allen is a bigger guy, and he's more apt to tuck the ball and run. They've had varying levels, uh, varying levels of success so far in the National Football League. Of course, Allen can look at Darnold and say, Hey, I got the playoffs last year for the first time leading my team. But Darnold was seven and six as a starter last year. A friendly competitors, no doubt about that. And these are the two guys who could be dominating, dominating the AFC East for maybe the next 10 years. Miami might be looking to to add a quarterback to their stable here in the 2020 draft. And we'll have to see what happens with the Patriots. But when you're thinking about the AFC East and when you think about quarterbacks, you're thinking about Sam Darnold and Josh Allen. Yeah, I think the future of the AFC East at the quarterback position, especially between those two guys, very exciting. And we've talked about this before. Sam Darnold, just 22 years old, six months younger than Joe Burrow, the projected number one overall pick here in a couple weeks. And Sam Darnold is the longest tenured AFC East quarterback by probably like a single game because Josh Allen did not start in week one of his rookie year. That was actually Nathan Peterman. And then Josh Allen got the keys to the offense. And I'm excited to see Josh Allen and Sam Darnold both healthy, both playing in 2020. I mean, you think about week one, they squared off against each other in 2019. But, you know, Sam Darnold has said this before. He didn't necessarily feel 100%. Then he goes down with mono. And in week 17, they didn't play against each other because Josh Allen was basically resting for his playoff game against the Houston Texans. So I'm excited to see what these two quarterbacks can do toe-to-toe in the future. 
Josh Allen's got a new toy in Stephon Diggs. The Bills went out and got him a number one receiver. So the Bills do quietly have a very impressive list of skill position talent around their young quarterback. We talked about John Brown before, Cole Beasley, Motor Singletary. The rookie last season was very impressive from the running back position. But the Jets, listen, I think people are kind of sleeping on what's around Sam Darnold. You know, Joe Douglas has went to work on that offensive line, and he certainly is not done there. But Jamison Crowder, you like him at the slot position, no doubt about that. Le'Veon Bell, yes, he averaged a career low, 3.2 yards per carry last season. But he also pitched in on the receiving side. He was second behind Crowder in receptions and he is a dynamic blocker for his young quarterback and if the Jets have this offensive line going in the right direction expect Le'Veon Bell to have better numbers because I don't think the numbers did him justice last year Robbie Anderson gone to Carolina but Brashard Perryman comes in and let's see if he can build off those last five games when he really flourished for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who's going to be playing across the way Who knows at this point, but the tight end position for the New York Jets is stocked. So I I think the Jets aren't that far away when you think about their skill position talent, uh, but they're certainly going to look to add to those positions. And Douglas can add either to the O-line, to receiver, even a running back in the draft under two weeks away now or a week plus away, April 23rd, the first round. And that was another edition of the official Jets podcast, our draft countdown series presented by Verizon. Back more with some more Jets-related talk. Not so much draft tomorrow. EA, stay safe out there. Take care, Greens. Take care, Greens.